Hi, I'm Brian Giuliano, part of the Global Fixed Income Team here at Brandywine Global. I'm Jack McIntyre, one of the portfolio managers on the Global Fixed Income Team at Brandywine. And today we're going to be talking about the macro environment, from Trump to trade, yields, the dollar, and China. And Jack, what a difference a year makes when you think about the market environment in 2017 versus 2018. Right? Asset class performance was, was strong almost universally last year. Volatility was subdued. Uh, but the first three to four months of, of 2018, it's been a rocky start. Um, dispersion has been high across asset classes, within asset classes. Um, volatility has been on something of a, of a hair trigger, uh, right? reacting or even overreacting to, to Trump's latest tweet or, or some economic data point. So, Jack, is, is the market trying to send us uh, a warning signal here? Has, has, the, has the macro backdrop deteriorated? So, no, it's a great question. I think it's you know the foundation of how we've constructed our, our portfolio because – I really don't think the macro backdrop has fundamentally changed. What is that macro backdrop? Well, we still have pretty broad-based global growth. Okay, so maybe it's not quite as broad as it was maybe at the end of last year, uh, but growth is still pretty resilient. So maybe uh, inflation, it's kind of percolating. That's probably too strong a word. It's edging higher a little bit. I think that, in some ways, has been a little bit of a source of volatility. Um, but I'm not so sure the markets are purely focused on the underlying and positive macro fundamentals globally. Uh, it's these exogenous sort of uh, events that uh, are out there that are influencing market sentiment. So that's a, a pretty positive fundamental backdrop mm -hmm. for the global economy you, you, know, you, you just laid out. And there's a good chance in 2018 that nominal GDP here in the U.S., it could average 5%, maybe even a little bit more. That's, that's, that's a pretty strong number, 5 plus percent. Yet you've got longer dated Treasury yields trading lower today than where they were back in May 2013 before Bernanke sparked the taper tantrum. So what is it that bond markets are trying to tell us? Yeah, so you can kind of extrapolate that and look at the, the curve. So the curve is clearly flat. And what drives along the curve, it's inflation, but primarily inflation expectations. And inflation expectations are still well anchored. Um, you pointed out, yeah, things have clearly improved from a growth standpoint. But remember, you know, it's taken a huge amount of monetary stimulus, a huge amount of fiscal stimulus to get the U.S. economy, the developed economies to this point in time. I don't think we have had enough growth to really start to significantly move higher inflation expectations. Um, I think what's going to have to happen is inflation is going to have to run a little higher uh, for for real yields to move higher because remember real yields are inflation and inflation expectations so you know we've got to see this sort of transition uh, to higher inflation and the bond market doesn't believe that's going to happen at least not yet and remember the Fed has been tightening now for a couple of years and uh, the balance sheets can. Uh, contracting, and it's going to be contracting at an accelerating pace here. So uh, I'm not sure I agree with the view that, you know, the, the contraction uh, of the balance sheet is like watching paint dry. It is a tightening, uh, and in some ways, the bond market might be telling us that. So you alluded to some some secular headwinds there, and, and maybe just to flesh it out further. So just a, right, a world awash in debt, just a lack of yeah. productivity, technology, just, just all those different challenges, all those things uh -huh. just, just pushing um, disinflationary pressures. I thought it was really interesting that younger generations, right, are always optimistic mm -hmm. than, than older generations. That is, until now, for the first time 
ever, consumer confidence for those individuals older than 55 is actually greater than confidence for those below 35. That's astounding, and it speaks to some of those strong secular headwinds that we're facing right now. Yeah, I agree. You know, it's a a cultural shift. It's going to influence politics. Uh, I I wonder, you know, if it's going to sort of influence the um, willingness of younger consumers to want to embrace debt. Uh, Clearly, the baby boomers had no problems taking on on debt, uh, and they've kind of gotten us to the situation where we are today, where we have a huge amount of outstanding debt, and somebody ultimately is going to be on the hook for that debt, and uh, most likely it's going to be the younger generation. So, I, you know, and again, the, the, we've been in a challenged growth environment now for a decade, so that clearly has to have scarred uh, and influenced the younger generation, and that might be reflected in, in some of the, um, the sentiment numbers that you uh, just out- outlined. So you brought up monetary policy uh, and the Fed a few minutes ago. So the yield curve will be flat or even negatively sloped by year end if the Fed follows their their median dot plot expectations for, for, for the rest of this year. There is no single Fed official that is concerned with downside risks to inflation. I thought this was absolutely incredible when I read this the other week. So for the first time since the Fed started publishing FOMC participant views about the the balance of risks to their forecast, exactly zero of them today think that downside risks outweigh upside risks. This entire cycle, the Fed has been persistently over-optimistic about their expectations. Is this another one of those mistakes, potentially? Uh, yeah, I have to admit, it doesn't give me a warm, fuzzy feeling because it wasn't that long ago, actually in December, when you had a couple of uh, Fed officials dissenting from the rate hike, um, saying that the Fed needs to go slower. So uh, I, I, I hope the Fed, you know, kind of does their analysis. I know they're what's driving the rate hikes uh, is the business uh, cycle, the cyclical inflation. But as we've talked about, you know, there's still these secular disinflationary influences that are out there that are certainly going to keep, um, I think, a lid on how high inflation is actually going to move. Uh, so, yeah, I think the Fed, the gradualist approach, and I think Powell has, you know, communicated that very effectively, that they're, they're, they are going to go slow. And there's risks for moving too slow, and there's risks for moving too fast as well. So I, I think right now that they're probably on a, a pretty good uh, sort of pace uh, of tightenings. Um, if I was advise, advising them, I'd say, hey, err on the side of going a little slower as opposed to faster because uh, we don't see um, a lot of inflation pressures building uh, as of right now. And Paul Volcker always showed us the, the way to, to break the back of inflation is just tighten aggressively. Unfortunately, you'd have to take the economy into a recession. But he, he sort of did an effective way of wringing out inflation in the U.S. economy that's lasted for, for decades. So let's shift gears for a second and talk a little bit more about Trump and trade and just some of the U.S. policies there. So we have a new trade deal with South Korea. It looks like we're getting some, some clarity uh, out of NAFTA. We might even be coming closer to a, a resolution there. Um, we're even thinking about rejoining the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Incredible if you think about some of the statements that Trump made uh, a year ago. Um, yet trade tensions with China are, are seemingly escalating. So, Jack, what's, what's the signal in the noise here? Yeah, I'd say the signal is more of the relations between China and the U.S. That is the 100-pound um, gorilla in the room. That relationship uh, is, I think, from a global investor standpoint, uh, more important. 
than the U.S. relationship with Mexico and Canada, which is, don't get me wrong, it's very important. I think we are going to get uh, progress on NAFTA. I think, uh, in part, the motivation there, get NAFTA out of the way so they can focus on China. And we've got to, um, and this is, it's going to be, you know, challenging environment. Um, you know, so far, President Xi has kind of taken, taken the higher road of saying, hey, maybe we're going to open up, um, you know, the Chinese economy to some more U.S. goods, um, which will certainly be a net positive. But this is a bigger issue than just that. There's some bigger fundamental issues uh, that have to be settled. And that's going to take a little bit longer, and it's going to create some angst in the markets every so often. But progress on NAFTA. Uh, and we're you know, positioned for that. We expect um, that a, a positive resolution. Timing might be a little bit up in the air. So the TPP, um, I have to say, it's, I'm glad that it's back in the conversation. Uh, it should never have left the conversation. Um, having said that, though, I'm pretty clear that the motivation for there, uh, it goes back to China. Uh, and kind of trying to isolate China a little bit more. Uh, again, I think everything that we're discussing from that standpoint is all about uh, helping the negotiation process between the U.S. and China. So you brought up our, our relationship with, with China. And the other day, Trump tweeted, Russia and China are playing the currency devaluation game as the U.S. keeps raising interest rates. Is this good cop, bad cop? Yeah, that's one way to describe it, because um, you've seen that. So Trump comes out, he's the bad cop. Uh, and then his, his other uh, members of his administration kind of come out and, and try and soften the blow, which is, you know, uh, hey, you know, it's an interesting uh, negotiation, negotiating tactic. Um, uh, at some point, you know, the markets are, you know, are, are going to kind of look through that and just focus maybe a little less on what Trump tweets uh, and then more of, hey, what are ultimately the, the real actions uh, from that standpoint? But, you know, one of the things um, and, you know, go back to the, the, the tweet that you mentioned, uh, I think, you know, Trump is still very focused on the U.S. dollar. Uh I'm not saying we're going to go into any kind of currency war, competitive devaluation, uh, but he is very, um, I think, committed to making sure the U.S. dollar doesn't rally sharply. Um, and I think he would actually like to see other currencies uh, strengthen just to sort of help the U.S. competitiveness from a trade standpoint. Because we're in a little bit of a tough spot because U.S. economy is doing well. It looks like it's going to continue to do well. Consumer sentiment still pretty high. So they're still actively buying things, but, you know, we don't produce a lot of things in the U.S., so it's er eroding the um, the trade deficit. Uh, and we know the trade balance is another sort of barometer of uh, how Trump sees the success of the U.S. economy. So we have trade ten tensions, quantitative tightening, rate hikes, tax cuts, growth acceleration in the U.S., and all those things point to what should be more more dollar strength, right? A strengthening dollar environment. Yet we haven't seen mm -hmm. any of that. If this kind of an environment doesn't cause the dollar to rally, what can? Well, I think so. It's interesting. I'd say a little over a year ago, you saw in the currency markets, they shifted their focus from relative monetary policy to relative growth rates. I still think that's the dominant sort of theme driving currencies right now. There's just better growth outside the U.S. So maybe with the tax reform getting traction, uh, we might see growth pick up. But if, if growth is doing better uh, in the U.S., uh, it's probably going to be doing better in the emerging world. Uh, and there, I still think there's some valuation anomalies to exploit in their, their currencies as well. So still an environment that, you know, the dollar could do better versus the um, other members of the G3, you know, the Japanese yen, the euro. 
But when we look at the universe and look at the G20 currency universe, uh, we think the dollar is going to continue to weaken versus most, most of those types of currencies. And those are, you know, more of your EM-type uh, currencies. I think the commodity currencies in that space are the ones that are the most undervalued and probably have the, the best potential to rally versus the U.S. dollar over the next year or so. All right. Well, thank you, Jack. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Please don't hesitate to contact us if you have any questions.